Well, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3. As you're turning those, has anybody noticed extra Kleenex boxes in the pews and things? You notice that? Anybody notice that or am I just talking to you? Okay, we got them. You appreciate that? It's because the sermon today is so powerful it will reduce you <laughs> to tears. You'll be reaching for those things. Oh, no. Well, actually what happened was we had a little event here yesterday. It was the seeing the unseen and dealing with the problem of human trafficking and what we can do to respond to that. And, and folks, it's a multi, multi, multi-level thing um, and a problem to deal with. But uh, So we, we had a room full of folks, about 250 better people from the community coming to our church to learn how they can be a part of the answer to the... Um, just the, the sin and the injustice of human trafficking, uh, wherever it stands out. One of the big messages that came out to me was, you don't have to be worthy of rescue. You are worthy of rescue. And God's love and God's grace and God's mercy reaches out to you where you are, and uh, you do not deserve to be in bondage. Folks, that's true of all of us. You don't deserve to be in bondage. And uh, just let the message go out. You know, if you're struggling, if you're suffering, and you're thinking, you know, well, nobody will listen to me. Yeah, they will. Yeah, we will. That's because of Christ. So that's why the tissues are there, just to remind us that uh, uh, we got to host that event. Thank you for being the kind of church that will talk about the love of God in a very concrete way uh, to our community. So I want to commend you. Uh, for that. We're looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 3. It'll start at verse 7, go through verse 13. Uh, you know, a lot of times you heard it said of the writings of the Apostle Paul that in his letters, the first thing he does is he talks about theology, and then in the second half of the letters, he talks about practical things. And to a certain extent, that's true. It's, it's, uh, um, you, you can see that in, in some settings. But I... I I'm not real comfortable in, in simplifying it that way for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is it's, it's not always exactly true. I mean, when you look at the book of Galatians, Paul just launches right in there. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And he just launches into talking about the problem that is there. In the books of uh, two letters to the Corinthians, uh, he, he just launches in and starts talking about this shopping list of problems that you have. You know, we've heard there's factions among you. We hear somebody's behaving immorally and, you know, on and on and on. And he just goes down a shopping list of problems. So that, that doesn't quite match the pattern. Um, now, there are other books that do match the pattern. Colossians does, for example. Romans kind of. I mean, he only spends nine chapters in, in that theology. Remember how much fun we had? Thank you so much. And so as, as uh, you know, and, and then he moves into, well, what does that mean because of the mercies of God? How does that apply to your life to live as a living sacrifice uh, to God? So um, it, it, it sort of comes and goes. That, so that's one reason why it's, 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 you really need to be careful about saying Paul always talks about theology first, and then he talks about practical things um, because it's not exactly true. Uh, but the other reason is in my line of work, <laughs> There's nothing more practical than theology. And in your line of life, it actually is too. What we believe about God will change how we live. And what we believe about his grace for us in Christ Jesus will, will, will dramatically alter 
how we respond to life and problems in life and to other people in our lives. And so um, it's not like, oh, there's that theology stuff for the specialists, and then there's the practical stuff that we can really enjoy. Um, it's, in point of fact, all woven together. It's all of one piece. It's all the, um, the, the same gospel at work, and you need to know the, the teaching foundation, the, the reality, the foundation of it that leads to the outworkings and what that means um, in our daily lives. Now, I bring that up for the book of Ephesians because in chapter 4, he is going to make that turn into, well, folks, here's what it means. Here, here's how it works out in your life. But if you were to, uh, you know, uh, just turn the page over to chapter 4, and don't do that because I just did. But uh, in, in, in chapter 4, one of the things he's going to say is uh, there's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. In other words, he's going to talk about oneness and what that means in the life of the church. But before we get to chapter 4, here in chapter 3, he's talk, going to talk about oneness and the unity that we have in, in Christ Jesus. You remember uh, uh, we've talked about how the mystery, the mystery of Christ among other things, but the mystery of Christ is that God has brought the Jew and the non-Jew, the Jew and the Gentile together in one gospel with one plan of salvation, not multi-levels of salvation. Oh, the, the Jews are like really so close, they only need a little bit of help to cross the finish line, but the Gentiles are like really, really bad and they need a lot of help to get to God. No, in point of fact, we are all sinners. We are all uh, under the wages of sin that is our death. We all deserve the judgment and the wrath of God. But God in Christ Jesus has given us his righteousness, clothed us with the righteousness of Christ. And that's true of Jew and Gentile alike. So that, that's the mystery. Remember, that's the mystery that, that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about how now uh, God has made one person, one body, out of Jew and Gentile. So that's what he's dealing with. And then as we, as we read this paragraph of Scripture, 3, 7 through uh, 13, um, he's just sort of highlighting uh, how that's kind of worked out in his own life and why that's significant. So I wanted us to sort of have that, that rolling start into um, Ephesians chapter 3. We're starting to read at verse 7. And Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the external purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Father, we just thank you that you are a God who looks beyond where we are and where we're headed and what we want to give us a new vision, to bring us to where we need to be, and to give us what you want. Father, I'm thankful that you do not allow us to dictate the terms of salvation, but you provide the perfect terms, the perfect one, your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might be saved and redeemed. 
Father, we're thankful that you did not ask for our advice, for we surely would have come up short and empty and limited. But, Father, out of the depths of your wisdom and knowledge and grace, you have brought to us the gospel of salvation. Father, we're thankful that your saving work and grace depends solely upon you and not at all upon us. Thankful, Father, that you love us that much and you're kind and merciful to us that much. In this time that we have together, let your Holy Spirit be poured out into our hearts and to redirect us both in mind and in action and thought, word and deed, that we would ever give you glory, honor, and praise and that we would live out that mercy, not because of who we are, but, Father, in thanksgiving and praise for who you are. For your glory, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's something very human about dividing up into groups, your team, my team, uh, your tribe, my tribe. doesn't matter if your tribe looks like my tribe, does what my tribe does. You're not my tribe. And so there's conflict. There's something very human about uh, having contention and and arguments and going back and forth uh, and that kind of thing. And and so um, uh, division and separation among human beings is, is just very, very, very common. And the sad thing is, because we are human beings here in the church, in the body of Christ, that same tendency to divide up into teams and warring factions is also sometimes a part of our church life. Again, I, I bring this to you not as a, as a remedy for some problem that we're having in our fellowship, but just more as a preventative medicine so that we keep ahead of the problem. But uh, it, it is so common for churches to have divisions and have splits. People get turf battles. You know, this, this is what I do. This is my ministry. You better not change that. This is my classroom. You better not change that. And uh, I've, I've told you one of my favorite stories about divisions in the church was that uh, there was a church in Kentucky back in pioneer days, and um, they were having a Bible study and discussing lying. You know, is it, is it okay to lie? And they said, well, no, 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 no. You should never, never lie. And then somebody asked a question. They said, but what if the Indians come to your door? And I don't mean that as a commentary on Native Americans. It's just the way the, the, the history of it goes. But he says, you know, what if the Indians come to your door and they say, we're, we're, we're taking and we're killing all the men in the village. Is your husband at home? And what does the wife say? Because she knows her husband is hiding under the bed where he belongs. But he's hiding under the bed. And there was a serious discussion going on that some said, no, absolutely not. You cannot lie. You must tell him, yes, my husband is home. And the other side saying, yes, it's okay to lie. To save the life of your husband, it's okay to lie. And they started arguing back and forth. And so the church split. And they became known as the Lying Baptist Church and the non-lying Baptist church. And, uh, you know, the, the church splits is, is, is something that happens in our, in our fellowship. I think uh, Baptists are probably really good at church splits because we, we start out pretty honorary to start with. But, you know, we have just this individualism about us, and, and I, I know the, the right way. And so what happens is the church has an argument, and one half of the, the church splits off from, from the other half of the church, and they go start another church. And you know what that's called? Missions, <laughs> you know. So often we, we justify it. But, uh, you know, this division in, in the body of Christ is a real thing because you have human beings uh, here in the body of Christ. And it, and it can be a very serious issue. And here's how serious it can be. If we get it wrong, if we allow divisions, if we, 
if we allow uh, groups to be against each other and arguing with each other, if, if we allow ourselves to become the kind of body where uh, you come into church and you're scoping out who's on my side, who's on the other side, and, and you're doing that kind of... If we allow divisions in the church and the body of, the, uh, of Christ, the world will notice that first. And nothing you ever say about God and nothing you ever say about Christ and nothing you ever say about the Holy Spirit will ever be heard by a world that knows there are divisions in your church. If we allow divisions in the church, our our witness is not just impaired, it is absolutely destroyed. Nothing makes Satan happier about church life than when he can split a church and hopefully split them on the basis of some kind of religious principle so that not only are we mean and nasty to each other, we're mean and nasty to each other in the name of God. and, And that just makes Satan really, really, really happy. And the world will notice that more than anything else. They'll go right to that. That's the excuse. That's why we don't care. That's why we don't accept the gospel. So if we get it wrong, we destroy our ministry and our testimony. But if we get it right, you know, if we learn to love one another, if we learn to reach out and embrace the just the multitude of ways in which human life is being expressed just in this room. If we learn to reach out and and appreciate the different pathways that people have taken in their journey of life and and come to see that there are are a lot of different ways that that God can lead us for his glory and work for our glory so we come to the same cross and the same Christ. If we learn to appreciate that for a lot of things in this world there's more than one viewpoint, if we give get it right, we start to grow personally and as a church. We start to realize that God is doing something deep and wide, that God is doing something terribly profound and broad in our midst, and that Christ came not just to pat us on the back because we go to Sunday school, but Jesus Christ came so we could experience the depths and the fullness and the riches of life. If we get this thing on unity together, then what happens is as I'm, as I'm going through my life and I'm seeing the, the majesty of God's work in the world from my perspective and you're standing over here and you're not quite where I am, but you're seeing the same glory of God from your perspective. If I can just incorporate that perspective and my perspective, suddenly I see God in three dimensions, not two dimensions. And that means my faith is no longer a cartoon, comic book faith, but it is a deep, real, profound faith in the glory of God's grace. You see, if we get it right, if we learn to love each other and we learn to embrace one another and appreciate one another, then truly the depths of God's grace is made manifest in our midst. And the world will notice that. So it's a very important subject. Paul found himself right in the middle of of conflicting tribes, of of Jews and Gentiles uh, who were um, just wondering about the other camp. They'd each been brought up to think the other was a little bit nuts, and uh, they weren't really all that thrilled necessarily about embracing one another. For the Jew, that meant, you know, turning away from a long line of human tradition and religion. And for the Gentile, it meant embracing these kooks, these Jews that all your life you'd learned were okay to hate. And and now they're being brought together. And Paul says, I've been made an apostle for this mystery to tell people that God's bringing Jew and Gentile together. And the power of Christ is such that he's making them one person in one body in Christ. That's what the gospel does. 
And so Paul found himself in, in, in the middle of these two camps just believing that the gospel could somehow bring it all together. Folks, our God is a God who brings people together in Christ Jesus. And I want for us to just take a few moments and to, and to look at what uh, uh, Paul says about it here in this paragraph of Scripture that we read a moment ago and to just get an insight in how God's Spirit can work in our lives to keep us uh, as a part of the unifying uh, dynamic of God's grace in the fellowship of the body of Christ rather than a human dynamic of division. So we, we turn to verse 7. And first thing Paul talks about, he says, here's my conviction. He says, here's what I'm convinced of. This is the conviction that's come to me. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Paul said, I'm convinced I'm a child of grace. I'm convinced that it's grace that brought me here. It wasn't his education, and Paul had quite a bit of education. Some of you recall that Paul said that he had studied at the feet of Gamaliel. That is, he was a graduate student with Gamaliel as his sponsoring professor. Now, here's how important Gamaliel is. Uh, Gamaliel lived in the days of the New Testament, but two, three hundred years later, when the Mishnah was put together, this is the uh, uh, writing down of the oral tradition of the Pharisees. They finally wrote it down a couple of hundred years later, and uh, uh, that's called the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, Gamaliel is quoted. Two hundred years later, the Jews are still quoting Gamaliel. Not only that, but then uh, the Jews had a, uh, a, a, a set of commentaries on the Mishnah. That's called the Talmud. Most of you have heard of the, of the Talmud. The Talmud is a commentary on the Mishnah, which is the recording of the oral tradition and the teaching of the rabbis of whom Gamaliel is one. What that means is Jews today still study the words of Gamaliel. They still study what he taught. A lot of other things, but in part, they studied Gamaliel. And Paul said, I was a student of Gamaliel. He says, if ever education could bring a man into the kingdom of God, it would have been the apostle Paul. And that was not enough. Paul said, it wasn't my education. It wasn't my status. It wasn't my my ethnic background. I was a Jew. I was born into the family, a child of Abraham. He said, it wasn't any of those things. It was nothing but the grace of God that saved me. Now, one of the things that happens when you know you've been saved by grace, one of the first things that happens is it will thrill you. I mean, it will absolutely thrill you because, you know, if you, if you look at yourself long enough, you come to realize there is no good thing in me worthy of God. You know? uh, some of you know I like to fly um, uh, airplanes in my computer. I'm a simulated pilot. And I have killed simulated people all over the world. You know, and so I, I, I like to fly my airplane in, in, in this simulator. I, 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 I don't fly a real airplane, okay? But my brother once asked me, he said, look, he said, could you fly a real airplane? I said, Terry, no, I can't fly a real airplane, but I'll do better than you. <laughs> but when you encounter grace, what you realize is, no, I can't fly an airplane a, a, at all. And crashing on the side of the mountain is not crash, better than crashing on the side of a different mountain. We're all going to crash here. But you see the grace of God, and it will thrill your heart to know that God looks beyond our sin, and he sees there the perfection of Jesus Christ, and he places on us the righteousness of Jesus. So we're clothed in his righteousness, not in our sin. So knowing the grace of God will absolutely thrill you. But the second thing that knowing the grace of God will do is it will 
humble you. It will make you realize how far God had to reach down to lift us up. And once it humbles you, then you start to look at other people in a different way. You stop that, that silly human thing where we rank one another and, you know, how, how good you are and how, how great you've achieved things and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, we're, we're just, we, 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 we cut that stuff out because the grace of God will humble you. Here's what happened to Paul. Um, if, if we read on, it says, I was a child of, of the grace which is given to me by the working of his power. But he says in verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints. Though I'm least of all the saints. In 1 Timothy, Paul also says that he is the chief or the foremost of all the sinners. So he says, of all the saints, of all the the good people, of all the, the, the believers, he says, I'm the very least. And he says, of all the sinners who rebelled against God, he says, I'm the worst. I'm the chief of all sinners. Now, this isn't just literary hyperbole. It's not like he's just trying to make a point by, uh, by overstating the case. Here's what I think happened. I think Paul just kept getting closer and closer to God, his heavenly Father in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the closer you get to the glory and the righteousness of God, the more you see your own sin and shortcomings. Uh, you know, I, I, one of my other hobbies is, is building uh, wooden model ships and if you go into the office, you can actually see one of them on display. If you come into my office, you can see several of them. But uh, in, in the office, in the main office, you go in there and over one of the secretary's desks, uh, there's one of, the, one of my model wooden ships. And, and the kids will come in and they'll say things like, oh, look at the pirate ship. It's not a pirate ship. It's a scale replica of the USF Constitution. What do you mean pirate ship? Yes, thank you, Johnny. You know, it's just... But a lot of people are very, very kind and they're very gracious and say, oh, wow, look at the detail. That's just marvelous. It's a wonderful ship, you know, and, and I'm nodding, yes, yes, yes. But I know the flaws there. And the reason I know the flaws is because in the model shipbuilding world, we have a tool and it's called the camera. And whenever you build something, a little small detail, you take a picture of it and then you keep enlarging that picture, okay? And the more you enlarge it, the more you realize that's a model, it's not the real thing. That happens to all of us except for two guys in Russia, one guy in France, and there's a fellow up in Pennsylvania who does magnificent work, and he passes the photograph test. But, but in, in, in point of fact, um, they, they, just taking a picture and zooming in and getting closer and closer, you see the flaws. I'm not going to show them to you. You'll have to find them yourself. But I know they're there. In fact, my models are what are called five-foot models. And that's not because they're five-foot long, because they're not. They're called five-foot models because you have to get five feet away from them before they start looking good. All right. <laughs> So that's what Paul meant. He said, I am, I'm the least of all the saints, and I'm the chief of all the sinners. Why? Because the closer you get and look at me, the more you'll see the flaws and the inaccuracies. You'll see the things that were done wrong or were slipshod or were just haphazard, the things that need improvement. He says, the closer you see my life in the light of the glory of Christ, the more you'll see those things. And Paul was convinced of that. The grace of God humbled him. Now, that's not a reason for despair. That's not a reason to quit. That's a reason just to keep pressing on in the grace of God because he always has more. And, you know, it's not like God's surprised that you've got flaws in your life. You know, it's not like God looks at it and said, I had no idea Wayne did that. Look at that. He's got that dead eye and that chip wrong. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, you know, it's not like we're surprising God when we have flaws. 
He saved us knowing full well who we are. And so Paul is humbled by that. And so his conviction is that it's only the grace of God that has brought him from where he was to where he needs to be and where he is now. It is grace and grace alone. And by the way, that's a big step towards having unity with other people and and having peace with other people is to understand you really are not the be-all and the end-all. Jesus Christ is the be-all and the end-all. You know, and so the, the point is that I need to win the argument and I need to win this and that and the other. It, it, it's rather that Jesus Christ needs to be exalted and glorified. So that, that's, that's like a really cool step towards unity and being at peace with other people. So Paul says, that, that's my conviction. He said, but here's my, my calling. Here's, here's what happened to me. He says, uh, uh, this grace was given me to preach to the gospels. Um, in verse 8, least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. See, Paul had been asked to preach, commanded to preach to Gentiles. Now, this isn't, this isn't right, by the way. Um, if we had given Paul the, the uh, uh, skill test, the personality test, we would have discovered the best place to use Paul would have been to send him to the Jews. Because after all, he knew all the Jewish scriptures. He knew all the Jewish tradition. He knew where the Jews were coming from. He knew from the inside what they had suffered at the hands of a hostile world around them. Paul was ideally suited to preach to the Jews. And that's why God sent him to the Gentiles. See, God has a sense of humor like that. And so he sent to the Gentiles the very hardest people for him to preach to. Now, when Paul would go into a town, he would go into the synagogue and he would preach to the Jews first of all. He would preach to the Jews because they already sort of had a running start in understanding the gospel. They knew the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew the oracles of God. They knew the promises of God. They knew the Messiah was coming. And so the Jews sort of had a, 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 a ground on which Paul could build. And so he would preach in the synagogue to the Jews. And while he was preaching there, there would be some Gentiles, some non-Jews who were sympathetic to the Jewish uh, faith, and they would be there listening as well. But ultimately, Paul would be out in the marketplace. He'd be on the Areopagus. He'd be in a prison somewhere, but ultimately he'd be outside of the walls, on the streets, preaching to Gentiles who knew nothing about the true and living God, but Paul would preach to them and preach to them, and the Holy Spirit would save whom he willed. You see, uh, Paul was called to preach to, to folks who were very hard to reach. You might know somebody who's very hard to reach, but remember this, you know, whenever you hear somebody give a testimony and they're talking about, well, I was going through my life and nothing this and that and the other, and then one day I was listening to a preacher or I was listening to a friend or a TV show or whatever it was, and God spoke to me, and at that moment I realized Jesus was my Savior and I, I, and I accepted Jesus. Almost invariably, which is a contradiction, but most of the time, the person who says, and at that moment, will then come back and say, But looking back, I see all along that God sent people to tell me, to share with me, to preach to me. You know, there's somebody back in that person's childhood who shared the love of Jesus in a Sunday school class, who talked about the grace of God just by by, uh, just sharing a testimony of what God had done for them. There are people all along the way that had been talking to that person and sharing with them and sharing with them, and they never saw that moment of conversion. Not till we get to heaven and we turn the corner and we say, Whoa, what are you doing here? 
I shared Christ and you rejected him. Yeah, I did. But here's what happened. What you said stuck in my mind. And then somebody shared here and then somebody shared here. And finally God got through to me. And that's what happened. And now let's rejoice together. I think that's one of the things we get to do in heaven. I can't prove that. But I think we're just going to get to share testimonies and go thank all the people who are a part of God's grace and leading us to the cross. But, uh, but you don't see that. But Paul says, I was given a calling, and that was to go to the people who were hard to reach. You see, if you're going to have peace in your life and you're going to have harmony in your life, if you're going to get along with other people, a lot of times you'll be going to people who are hard to reach and people who are hard to deal with. Just be thankful you're not hard to reach and you're not hard to deal with. You know, you're a pussycat. You know, just, you know everybody loves you. But, uh, but, you know, for those other people, you know, um, that that uh, going in that direction, it's a calling of God to get along with some people who are very hard to get along with. It takes the grace. Paul said it was by the grace of God that, that, uh, that happened. He said, and to preach to them the unsearchable riches of Christ. That word unsearchable, it means it's always getting richer and richer and richer. And just about you've got, uh, the time you've got all the, 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 the beauty of, of Christ. Uh, just, just in your life, then there comes more. And it keeps, it, it's sort of like the, the ocean waves. You know, how many waves are there? Well, I suppose technically it's a finite number so far, but however many there are, there's more on their way. And that's the unsearchable riches of Christ coming towards them. So Paul said, I got the opportunity to share with people that Christ is coming to them in a, in a very powerful and rich, unending, eternal kind of way. So he said that, that, that was the calling that he had. And then he talks about the focus that he kept, that he kept, the central focus. Verse 9. He said, it was given to him to preach the gospel. And then in verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Jew and Gentile created all things. He said, and my focus was to preach this hidden mystery. See, the problem was that the Jews thought Messiah was coming to pat them on the back. That when Messiah arrived, he was going to say, you know, you, you Jewish folks, you're, you're really fine. You're the people of God. You're God's chosen. Good for you. And they thought Messiah would come and pat them on the back and wag his finger at the Romans and say, you bad Romans, bad Romans, bad. And just, you know, pop them on the snout with a rolled up spiritual newspaper and, and, you know, and just put them in their place. They thought that's what Messiah would do. But what Messiah did when he came was he said to the Jew, you're a sinner in need of grace and God's grace is here and it's now. And he says to the Gentile, you are a sinner in need of grace and God's grace is here right now. In other words, when Messiah came, it was one gospel, one message for Jew and for Gentile alike. That was a mystery to the, to the Jews. They didn't realize that until Jesus came Paul says, that's what I get to preach. That's what I get to tell them. That's the point I'm trying to make, that God makes us one by the power of uh, the gospel, of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And so, um, so that, and then the, um, the, the outworking of that that Paul wants, he says, so that through the church, this is verse 10, through the church, through the church, huh? Through staying home and watching my ta- favorite TV preacher. By the way, all of you listening in TV land, hi. Good to see you. We, we, you know, we're live streamed here, and I just want to take advantage of that. <laughs> but, okay. but it's through the church, through this thing where human beings are here, and we collide with each other, and we're broken, and we collide with each other, and we keep happening having to say, excuse me, and pardon me, and we keep having to forgive each other. 
through this church, this collection of believers in Jesus Christ, through the church, the manifold, that word manifold originally meant many colored, variegated. It's, it's, the, it, it's what it can just fit every circumstance. There's, there's no life outside of the power of the wisdom of God. But the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's talking there about the powers of evil that are trying to sabotage God's creation. In other words, when Christians get along and we actually love each other, it's sort of like tweaking the devil's nose you know, to the devil. That's what we get to do when we love each other and we're together. A lot more to say about that. Time is getting away from us, but uh, we're going to finish this thing. And this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Paul says, and in all this, he says, I have a confidence. I have a confidence, and here it is in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You realize that we walk into the very presence of God. We, we, we're, we're too flip about this, folks. That's why the world today just uses the name of the Lord in vain all the time. That's why some of you do it, frankly. You're not thinking. God who created the universe. God who has... Um, control over every aspect of existence. God who's so deep in his love and his wisdom and his beauty and his righteousness and his holiness, we walk into the presence of that God. Now, if we walk clothed in our sin, God can't abide sin. And we walk in our sin, we deserve and we receive the wrath of God. But here's the gospel message. God takes away from us that sin. He takes it off our shoulders. He puts it on Jesus, and he takes the righteousness of Jesus, and he puts it on us so that when we walk into the presence of the Father, he doesn't see us in our sin. He sees us us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's why we have boldness to enter into his presence. That's why we have the confidence to do so. And so Paul says, "I, I have confidence and boldness and access because of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Folks, if you're, if you're thinking about that, that problem and that situation where, where, where there's a contention and a strife and groups warring at each other, just understand our access is into the Father's presence by the power of Jesus Christ, not by anything we have done. Why do we look at others and expect them to measure up before God will love them and accept them? Okay? You, you, you know what I'm saying here. I just want to make that point. And then in verse 12, you know, in verse 13, then Paul concludes with basically an invitation. And so he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. See, Paul was in, in prison. It looked like his ministry was failing to the world. You know, there you go. He's put in prison. God doesn't want him to preach. And, you know, it talks about that in Philippians, for example. But uh, uh, he says, don't lose heart about that. He says, I'm in prison but it's for your glory, right? It's your glory. You get to brag about what God has done because I'm in prison, but his grace is unfettered and unbounded. And so Paul says that we have that. So just very quickly, you know, this issue of unity is so important in the church. We lose our testimony. We lose our ministry. We can do a lot of things, but if we're not united in Christ Jesus, we just lose that, that, that witness and testimony. We lose that ministry. Uh, right off the bat. But secondly, in the world, um, understand that, that um, if you just have this kind of attitude that I'm a child saved by the grace of God, and I, I know my faults, and, I, and, and it's just the grace of God that gets me 
through life day by day and moment by moment. And we, and we understand that our calling many times is to deal with the hard people, the difficult people, the, the folks that we would not choose to go to. But if God places them in our lives, all we can do is be a witness and a testimony and let them respond to the call of God's grace by the power of the Holy Spirit to understand that this is all based on the riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus. And we come with confidence and boldness in him. And once we have that understanding, then we can be um, uh, going out in peace with the world around us. I want to end with just, just uh, two things, and they're very, very short. I'm going to wait a full minute so you'll be late anyway. Nah. <laughs> First, one, one of the core values of our church is this. We exist for the glory of God's grace in Christ Jesus. If you keep that straight, you won't go far wrong. That's what we've been talking about this morning. We exist for the glory of God's grace in Christ Jesus. That's why we were all created. Secondly, in our fellowship, we preach the ideal. We preach the righteousness of of Christ. We preach the holiness of God. We preach the power of the Holy Spirit. We preach the ideal of of lives of of morality and and lives of ethics and goodness and and lives that are conformed to God's standards of, of behavior. We preach the ideal, and we embrace the real because we know all of us are struggling with something and all of us are coming from somewhere that, that's going to take grace to get us, get us through life. So we preach the ideal because we preach Christ. We embrace the real because all of us are struggling with something. And if we keep those two core values in mind, we won't go far away from one another. And the closer we keep to one another, the closer we keep to Christ, the more we fulfill his plan, his destiny for us. So let me just challenge you this week you know, in moments of conflict, wherever it shows up in your life, to just say, how can I glorify the Father through the Son that I would be an avenue whereby peace, reconciliation would come into this situation, and then, folks, you will have peace at last. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, there are so many reasons that we do things, so many justifications that we use, But your Holy Spirit reveals to us that there is only one reason and only one thing we need to do. There's only one reason, that is the glory of the Father, and there is only one one way to do that, and that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm praying for the outpouring of your Spirit. Change our hearts. Bring us into conformity with the image of Christ. Make us more like Jesus that the world would see, not us, but would see him and give him honor, praise, and glory. Come to know him, love him, and worship him. Father, give us the unity that you would give us by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.